Hi, everyone. Uh, so the reading today is from uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. <clears throat> now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good afternoon. Hi, my name is Bo, and one of the elders of the church. Uh, this uh, today's message, the title is "Bringing Many Sons to Glory." This title, while we are doing Matthew one verses eighteen to twenty-five, this title is taken from Hebrews two, chap uh, chapter two, verse ten. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In this verse, only sons are mentioned. What happened to daughters? Because in the New Testament, sons represent those who are to inherit the, or the, having the right to in, for inheritance. And that's why everyone who is in Christ are sons. Similarly, we are all daughters in Christ as well. Daughters are used in the Bible as people who, like daughters of Jerusalem, there's the people who depend on God uh, for, their, for their life or for their significance. So uh, it's not so much gender-based. Uh, okay. Uh, and I've been thinking, like last, when I first started this preparing the sermon, I, I was thinking the title like A Better Life or a Bitter Life. But then towards the last weekend, it came to me that this could be the, the title I should use, but I wasn't sure whether I could cover it. It's quite a big title. Uh, but then last Sunday, for the household song, both morning and afternoon service, the, the household song was the, was the same. It was chosen by two different people independently, and it was how deep, uh, the Father's love for us. So the first uh, word says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, uh, that he should give his only son to make uh, uh, wretch his treasure. Uh, how great is the pain of sharing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. So I thought, well, since those two people chose the song, that would confirm uh, for, for me to speak on, on this uh, top title uh, for, for 
today's sermon. Uh, shall we pray before we begin? Oh, Father God, we thank you for the grace that is awaiting us, even as we read your word and listen to you. And we also thank you for reminding us that we are made in your image. Even though we see everywhere in the world the shattered remains, we know that you are doing something to restore us and restore your creation. And we await that day uh, to come. And as we do so, help us to live a life worthy of calling. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On 17 of April 1975, the inhabitants of Phnom Penh, that is the capital of Cambodia, they were very excited. They were celebrating on the street uh, because they've been fighting with their own government for a long time. The government that was under King Suhano, that is very corrupted. Uh, and so they, I mean, people, they are not happy. They were looking for a better government, a better life. And so for years before that day, Pol Pot was uh, leading the rebellions uh, with the communist army under the help of Chinese communists. So eventually, and finally, they, they won the war and toppled the king. And people were very happy on that day. So Pol Pot and his army marched into the city. And on the same day, Pol Pot executed 800 people, all those top officials of the old government. And the same day, he ordered 2.5 million of the inhabitants of Phnom Penh to march out to the rural area because he didn't trust any of those uh, people. And so many people died as they went out under the hot sun and with very little provision. And over the next four and a half, four years and four months, one in four of the population died because of uh, Pol Pot's uh, regime. Is, and there was no education over those four, four years and four months, no industry, no development. And it took 20 years after Pol Pot uh, was toppled for the nation to start developing again. So it's quite a, a big blow to the whole nation. What happened to Pol Pot's vision? You see that at the beginning, Pol Pot, I think he did want to give people of Cambodia a better life, but it ended up giving them death. The Cambodian's dream of a better life became a nightmare. The problem was that Pol Pot tasted power we all like to have power. Power means that we can achieve the desire of our hearts. Popo also had the backing of the communist ideology. Popo was convinced that communism was the way to achieve utopia for his people. He therefore needed to kill all the potential threats to protect himself and the ideology. Human hearts are both short-sighted and self-centered. We do anything to protect our own interests often not considering the things we do may eventually destroy us. I mean, we all do that. Even the food that we eat right now could be destroying us slowly. We don't even know because we enjoy doing it. Or anything that we do, the movie that we watch, uh, the things that, uh, the, the work that we do, uh, they all can be 
damaging to our bodies or our souls we just didn't know or didn't think about it. The king of Cambodia allowed his officials to oppress his people because he gained much wealth from that, the corrupt behavior. He did not think that this would eventually lead to his own demise. The people of Cambodia, Cam Cambodia supported Pol Pot and his ideology because they wanted to escape from their corrupt government. And Pol Pot oppressed the people more than the government he toppled so as to maintain his power. He thought that by killing all the educated people and, and leaders, no one would challenge him. He did not expect his own officials were the ones who finally re rebelled against him. Humans have been trying to build a better society to live since history began. We all think that we could do better than our forefathers. We think that we can have better marriages, better families, better governments, or even better churches, but we fail. If you remember 1 King chapter 19, when, uh, when uh, uh, who's that? Um, just have a mental blank. When the prophet Elijah uh, asked God to take his life, he said, I'm no better than my forefathers. Even though Elijah was such a, a great man, a great prophet. But he, he was still trying to do something better than his forefathers. And he felt so disappointed that he couldn't achieve it. And that, so the best, even the best of us would feel that we could not uh, make a better society, make a better church, or make a better family even. I suppose you can see that the disappointing outcomes should be expected if you understand that the problem is with the raw material. The humans we make, who make up the marriages and societies are rotten. So when you mix rotten eggs together, you should not expect to get something good out of it. We see this even clearer in the clearer in the story of Exodus. So God provided the Israelites, the best human leader possible, to rescue them from the Egyptians. And on their way to the promised land, the Israelites complained bitterly and repeatedly about being mistreated by Moses or misguided by Moses. Every time the Israelites complained, Moses prayed to God for them and God provided their needs but they kept complaining. Why did they keep complaining? Because they were short-sighted and self-centered. Their slogan was, what do we want? We want a better life. When do we want it? We want it now. And this slogan has been repeated ever since then until now. They wanted, the Israelites wanted to get into the promised land straight away because God had promised to bring them to the land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know what will happen if you put rotten people into a land flowing with milk and honey? You can imagine they will start fighting for more milk and honey. They, they will start fighting to, to, to be the most prominent person. And basically they will spoil the, the place as they are. And they did. I mean, eventually they went in, they did spoil the place. But the fact that we are always looking for something better, a better life, a better marriage, better government, tells us that we have been created for something better. We fail again and again to build a better society with education and civilization because our minds are crooked and our hearts are rotten. It takes someone with a right mind and a pure heart 
to start the process. We cannot produce it someone from within ourselves. We needed to come from it. It needed to come from outside of us. Just like the computer uh, programming terms, garbage in, garbage out. So we cannot use garbage to produce good things. And so that, that's how this story comes in today. So, so going back to last week from uh, Matthew 1, chapter, verses 1 to 17, it tells us about God's plan and the genealogy. So despite the Israelites' short-sightedness and self-centeredness, God did not leave the Israelites alone because he promised the ancestor Abraham that his descendants would become a big nation and become, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. God does not leave the world alone either. He promised Adam and Eve that an offspring of woman would abolish the curse of their fall. God has an eternal plan for his kingdom and this plan will be fulfilled. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is part of the fulfillment of his promise to Adam and Eve. Today, we have come to the beginning of the fulfillment of both promises, the coming of the Christ. The Christ or the Messiah means someone who is anointed or chosen by God to establish his kingdom. The existence of Israel was to prepare for the coming of Christ. We read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The birth of Christ had to be unique if it was that someone who came from outside of us. This someone needed to be holy like God to redeem us. He also needed to be one of us to represent us. He needed to be both God and man, both holy and common. The virgin birth was therefore necessary to make this combination possible. You may think that virgin birth is scientifically impossible. You can think deep, deeper again. If scientists can make test tube babies, why could not God make a baby from a woman? Eve was made from a man without a woman. Adam was made without a man or a woman. Even for all of us who are made because of one man and one woman, it's still miraculous. If you know how many things can go wrong for a pregnancy to happen, for a child to be born, you'll know that each birth is a miracle in itself. So even though we say that the virgin birth is a miracle, actually any birth is a miracle if you know uh, how many things could go wrong in any, any conception of birth. So the virgin birth, though we call it virgin birth, actually is virgin conception. So it's the more appropriate term. And the concept, virgin conception is necessary because that Jesus needed to come from outside of uh, human beings, but he also needed to be part of human beings. But like most people, Joseph could not believe this. And how could Mary explain to Joseph about her pregnancy? The Holy Spirit made me pregnant, or well, Mary could also tell Joseph, if you do not believe me, 
you can ask my cousin Elizabeth. Actually, God did not leave Mary on her own. There was uh, someone who can uh, 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 confirm Mary's story. Uh, but uh, Joseph did not bother to, to go and, and see. Elizabeth is uh, some distance away, I suppose. So he decided uh, to cancel the marriage. So the Mary's pregnancy presented a huge problem to uh, Joseph. I think he loved Mary, but he was an Israelite, a, a person who was born under the law. To him, marriage was sacred and ordained by God. To, have, to, have, to be seen to have premarital sex would mean disrespect to God's will for marriage and dishonor to both families. So if he accept, accepted the responsibility for the pregnancy and married Mary, he would bear the shame of having premarital sex with Mary. If he denounced Mary as an adulteress and canceled the marriage, Mary would be stoned to death. Joseph was a just man. He could not believe or tolerate Mary's behavior. In Joseph's mind, Mary was not only an adulteress, but also a liar. Though Joseph tried to be kind in planning to cancel the marriage quietly, he was still short-sighted because he could not see the miracles. Joseph was still self-centered. He needed to protect his own reputation. The cancellation of the marriage would only save Mary for a short time. How would Mary explain the baby to other people? At some stage, she would need to do that. She couldn't just hide him herself in the jungle. If Joseph did not believe Mary's story, what is the chance of other people believing Mary's story? You might think that it was fair for Joseph not to believe in Mary's story. You think if I was Joseph, I wouldn't believe in that story either. Uh, but considering if uh, Joseph faced God in God's judgment throne, before God's judgment throne, God asked him, why didn't you believe Mary's story? Uh, Joseph can defend himself and say that, well, this story is simply not possible. It's not believable. Then God will ask Joseph, did you believe in Mary? Then Joseph will have a bit of difficulty answering this question because he, I think he loved Mary and he did believe in Mary and he knew that Mary was a good person. So God will ask him that he will tell him that you should have considered Mary's uh, story seriously, take his word, her word seriously. You see, uh, whether a story is believable is not so much about whether it's scientific or whether it's, it happened before, but it depends a lot who, who is the one who tells you the story. If someone who is trustworthy and someone who has no uh, history of uh, lying and telling you a story, I think we all need to take it uh, seriously and find out. I mean, Joseph could have found out if he went to see Elizabeth, but he didn't. So, but God was, God was gracious. I mean, God did not leave uh, Joseph out of the loop uh, in, this, in this matter because uh, Joseph 
is a, was a descendant of King David. And Joseph plays an important role, as we have read from last week's uh, genealogy, uh, for the promise of God to, to uh, take place. So God gave Joseph a dream. So this dream is a better dream than the, the one that Joseph had before. We can imagine Joseph had a dream about his marriage, how he's going to be happy ever after with Mary, all those things, uh, as all we do. And then, this is, then Mary told him that he got, she's pregnant, so his dream was shattered. And now we are read, today we are reading another dream, a better dream uh, for Joseph. This dream confirmed to Joseph that miracle was possible and it was happening right before his eyes. And also this was a sign that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham and King David that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This had been recorded by Isaiah 600 years before. Even though Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, he would be a the adopted father of Jesus, so that Jesus would become the greatest son of David. So the, the dream restored Joseph's trust towards Mary. Mary was not being unfaithful to Joseph. Mary was being obedient to God. Like Joseph, Mary would have her own dreams about her marriage. God had given her a greater dream. To conceive Jesus, Mary was prepared to sacrifice her own dreams her idea of, her, of marriage and even her dignity, she, because she, he, she wouldn't know what, David, uh, what Joseph would do uh, to her. So would Joseph be prepared to, to stand with Mary? To go ahead with the marriage would mean a loss of status in the society. Joseph's life would become harder. Joseph, like Mary, was changed by God. And you see this. Again and again in the Bible, there's God's grace in the change in people's life. After the dream, Joseph's idea of a better life was no longer the same. He had something much greater or bigger to live for. He stood by Mary and married her. In adopting the Son of God as his own son, Joseph played an important role in God's plan of adopting rebels as his sons. The angel of the Lord said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus was not a randomly given name. It represents his nature and his purpose in life. As we shall see in the book of Matthew, his name tells us not only what he was going to do, it tells us what kind of person he was. To the world, Jesus was not an impressive person. He grew up in a little and unknown town. His father was a carpenter. He did not have any qualification or degree to his name. He did not write a book to tell people how to have a better life. He simply lived a life of joyful obedience to God. The main difference between him and other people was that he did not come to fulfill himself. We all like to express ourselves. We want other people to know what we can do. That is the theme of our age in Disney movies or any movies. The theme is express yourself. Uh, just be yourself. Uh, show people 
who you are. Uh, that is the theme uh, of, of our time. But Jesus did none of this. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. That is from the book of John, uh, chapter 5, verse 19 in particular. Jesus repeatedly saying that I, I can do nothing on my own except what my father told me to do. Jesus was far-sighted and God-centered. He said he could do nothing of eternal value if he did them for his own glory. Jesus did not come to fulfill his own will. To Jesus, the kingdom of God was like a treasure hidden in a field. He would joyfully give all he had for the sake of the kingdom. And that is how uh, the image that Jesus is restoring, or an image of uh, us as being created by God, how we should live. Jesus started by giving up his equal status with God and became a man. Emmanuel means God with us or God mixing with us, living together in our midst. Despite this being foretold by Isaiah, the Israelites could not believe this was possible. The Israelites were the people who knew they were rotten because God's law told them so. They therefore could not believe that the Holy God would come near them, though they believed that if they worked hard enough to obey the law, they could become good enough to be accepted by God. When Jesus came among the Israelites, they were not prepared to receive him as the son of God. Some call him good teacher, some call him a lunatic, some call him a liar. What do you think will happen when someone with a right mind and a pure heart lives among people of crooked minds and rotten hearts? People would find him both attractive and repulsive. Attractive because he was never anxious. He was never resentful. He was never bitter. He was never in a hurry. So when people look at Jesus, they would find that he's a quite fascinating person. He, Jesus didn't seem to uh, have as uh, worries that we do all have. So for today, as soon as we wake up, we will have things that will worry us, things that we want to be in a hurry to finish or com- accomplish, and things that will upset us. And those who live near Jesus will find that Jesus didn't have such things. Jesus never complained, uh, like the Israelites complained bitterly about all the discomforts they've they gone through. And Jesus did not live a comfortable life. And Jesus was kind to the needy. He, got, he had time with the poor, with the sick, uh, with the, those who are rejected by the society. And Jesus uh, was unlike the, the leaders of the time. We can see the leaders, it's more about performance. It's like uh, performance, like a movie star, rather than serving the people. So we can see people who want to be president would criticize the presidency. People who want to be in government would criticize the government. So a lot of talks, but not many people really uh, live among the people and serve them. And people who are near Jesus will see that Jesus was not like this. Jesus, Jesus did talk and teach. He did teach. But more, more than teaching, Jesus lived with people. He had compassion with those who are lost. And, and that's the part of 
the uh, difference that people would notice and be attracted to Jesus. But then there are also people who find Jesus repulsive because Jesus was not bound by traditions. He was not bound by the legal re re reputations or sensations. He just did not try to appease anyone and he was not in intimidated by those who were in power. So eventually he would become such a threat to those who were in power that they plotted to get discredit him by killing him on the cross. The Israelites were correct in thinking that they were rotten. They were mistaken in thinking that rotten hearts could obey the law and, and remake themselves. They were mistaken also in thinking that Emmanuel was not possible. The biggest surprise for them was not even the fact that God did live among them in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a fact that God was killed by them in the person of Jesus Christ. The leaders of the world would sacrifice others to secure the positions. Who would foresee that the creator of the world would sacrifice himself to secure their adoptions? It is only in the death of Jesus Christ that God could give us life. Jesus lived among us, but unlike us, he was without sin. He obeyed God joyfully. His death was therefore sufficient to redeem us. His death also tells us that there is something far greater important to live for and to die for. Many soldiers had sacrificed themselves during World War II to defend world peace. Their death tells us to treasure the peace we now enjoy. The death of Jesus tells us to treasure the peace with God. The death of the soldiers did not really secure world peace. Not long after World War II, a newspaper editor in England asked the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton replied, dear sir, in response to your article, what's wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. So only a short sentence, but the best answer. The soldiers uh, or the United Nations cannot secure world peace because there's no peace inside our hearts until we have peace with God. We, we all long for a better life. God also wants us to have a better life. God's idea of a better life is quite different to ours. Our idea of a better life is primarily about having greater comfort. God's idea of a better life is primarily about holiness. It's, that is why Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He did not come to save them from poverty or suffering. Though things will change after we come to know Jesus, it is only in holiness that we can have peace with God and understand what real life is. The Americans were divided in choosing their leader who would make America great again. What do they mean by making America great? They mean being respected by other nations and having a more comfortable life. Even if they succeeded in being such a nation in the next four years, it will only be a very short time in the scale of eternity. Jesus saved his people to bring them to glory. Glory means something that's eternal value, something that is worth more than life, something that will amaze us, humble us, delight us, and transform us. Jesus laid down his life because he saw this glory. 
we also have a glimpse of this glory in Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel. Such a glimpse is sufficient to tell us that someone truly great has come to live among us and for us. Before his greatness, the greatness of any nation, any race, any family, and anybody would pale into insignificance. He has been sent to bring many sons to glory. Would we surrender our desire, the desires of our crooked mind and our rotten hearts to follow him? If we insist on raising our own dreams, we will end up destroying ourselves. If we follow him and seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus promised that he would be with us until the end of the age. And the Holy Spirit would change us into someone who can take part in the fulfillment of God's plan. So from the outset of this sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew, I want to remind everyone that God's plan does not stop at, forgiving, at forgiveness of our sins. In thinking about Jesus saving his people from their sins, we tend to stop at the point of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is true, and, and we thank God for that. Jesus came to do far more than that. Than this, He came to bring us to glory. He came to change our life. He came to live among us. I hope that we can see that and so we can live a life that is worthy of His calling. And I hope that as we go on with the book of Matthew, we can see that Jesus was living out a glorious life and he's inviting us to join him. Let us pray. Father, may you change us, change our vision that we will see greater things, glorious things, and that we would truly live a life that would honor you and be a blessing to everyone else around us. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.